When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. The Russian Revolution in 1917 led to the fall of a weak Tsar, Nicholas II, and the rise of Bolshevism. But this rise was not uncontested. What's often overlooked or amalgamated with the history of the Russian Revolution is the brutal Russian civil war that followed as the nation descended into chaos. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is Warfare. And to find out more about this crucial period in Russian history, I travelled to the Three Johns pub in London, England. Why here? Well, it was here in this very pub that Lenin and Trotsky allegedly met to sow the seeds of the Tsar's demise. While at the Three Johns, I just so happened to meet up with a heavyweight of the history world, Sir Anthony Beaver. Anthony is the author of a new book, Russia, Revolution and Civil War, 1917 to 1921. And it's through his cutting edge research that we learn just how the newly formed Red Army overcame the Whites. Now, I know you're going to love this one, so we recorded it for the History Hit YouTube channel. This means if you want to watch me and Anthony discuss this this incredibly important history, then simply head over to the History Hit YouTube and watch for free. But now, here is Sir Anthony Beaver on the Russian Civil War. Enjoy. Anthony, we are here at the Three Johns in London, in Islington, the place where it is alleged that Lenin stood up in front of the Mensheviks, and instead of arguing for a peaceful resolution, argued for one that would be purely violent, a violent way to overthrow the Tsar. And this he did. We had the Russian Revolution. But just as soon as that ended, we moved through to the Civil War period, the Russian Civil War. And this was between the Reds, the Bolsheviks, and the Whites. But I've always been slightly confused. Who exactly were the Whites? Well, the whites could be basically said to be anti-reds. I'm afraid it's as banal <laughs> as that. But they basically consisted of three factions. There were, of course, the reactionary officers who wanted to restore czarism. It was often the very younger officers who were so angry to see their inheritance, their family, homes and land being taken away. But also it was Cossacks who were the other huge thing, the Cossacks basically of southern Russia and the Caucasus, the Don Cossacks, the Kuban, Terek Cossacks down there. And then, of course, the Siberian Cossacks, who were sometimes the most reactionary and cruel of the lot. Uh, the Orenburg Cossacks, the Ussuri Cossacks, a whole range. And these were basically the sort of freebooters who had extended the Russian Empire during the 19th century, advancing east and basically taking over Siberia as well as Central Asia. And they were the vanguards. They were the ones who protected the Russian 
perimeter. They were tied to the Tsar. Did they actually want to bring the Tsar back, or was it just the Tsarist way of life for them? Some of the, the rules that they lived by. I, I, yes. I, was, I remember reading that they wanted to bring back the punishments of the Tsar so that they could punch their own soldiers in the face, for example. Oh, well, no, that was much more the Tsarist officers themselves okay. rather than the Cossacks. The Cossacks saw their way of life being threatened by the communists. Some of them, of course, some of the younger ones supported the overthrow of the Tsar. They were the Red Cossacks or the sort of more left-wing ones, but even they were then horrified at the way that the communists would then try to suppress their way of life and attack them because there was such a fundamental hatred really between the two. But then the most influential, of course, were the old Tsarist officers, of whom, of course, there were thousands, many, many thousands. And therefore, they produced a very, shall we say, top-heavy army because you had many battalions where there were just nothing but officers. They didn't have any soldiers or hardly any soldiers at all. So this was this sort of strange and very, in many ways, incompatible alliance, the whites, and also split up geographically between the what became the armed forces of southern Russia under General Tunikin in the south and the Caucasus. You had the whites in Siberia under Admiral Kolchak, but we'll come back to him later. And then you had a much smaller army up in the Baltic states under General Yudinich, really threatening Petrograd. So you had these sort of three different areas. And of course, that was a huge disadvantage to the whites because communications were so bad, they could never coordinate. And of course, the communists, the Red Army, as it eventually became under Trotsky, had the advantage, the great advantage of interior lines, i.e. they could reinforce their different fronts from this central area of Moscow and the whole of the central Black Earth region. And Trotsky had one hell of a task ahead of him. He had to take this ragtag bunch of soldiers and turn them into what would become the formidable Red Army. Was he uniquely suited for that particular role? Well, Trotsky was brilliant in so many ways. I mean, you know, as a speaker, I mean, he could inspire an absolute extraordinary courage as well amongst those he spoke to. But at the same time, Trotsky wasn't always right on a strategic front. And the only reason, really, why there was a civil war in Siberia was that there was this Czech legion. And these were Czechoslovaks who had been split up between the German, the Austro-Hungarian, and the Russian armies during the First World War. And they managed to get together at the end by crossing over the line, surrendering to the Russians or whatever, so they could join their fellow Czechs. And they were a disciplined, well-organized bunch of 50,000 men And Trotsky became so infuriated when there were clashes. They were trying to get home along the Trans-Siberian Railway to Vladivostok, where the French ships would bring them all the way back to Europe, and then they would fight on the French side in the last stages of the First World War. And there was a clash with some local red organization or central committee along the way. And Trotsky lost his temper and sent out an order saying, any Czech found with a weapon in hands will be executed. Well, that immediately put the Czechs into, uh, shall we say, first of all, a defensive, but an offensive defensive role. And soon the whole of the Trans-Siberian Railway, all the way from the Volga, all the way to Vladivostok, was under their control. And so that brought in all the potential whites and the Cossacks and so forth. And suddenly there was a huge white army all the way across Siberia. So that was a big mistake on Trotsky's part. Don't make 50,000 Czechs armed to the teeth particularly angry. 
Yes, yeah. you, you shouldn't. Uh, I think you should calculate. You should calculate, <laughs> you should calculate. your odds. Uh, I mean, I'm actually Napoleon's great great phrase was, you know, do not interrupt the enemy when they're making a mistake. Well, you don't do the opposite when you've <laughs> got a rather more effective enemy, and you actually provoke them unnecessarily. Now, when it comes down to the Czechs, that's one international force that is involved in this civil war. And if any history of civil war has taught us anything, it's that it's not purely a domestic. And so how many nations from around the world were involved in the Russian Civil War? Well, I mean, the list goes on. I mean, in terms of numbers, you know, British, French, American, above all Japanese, who landed nearly 80,000 men in Siberia through Vladivostok. But the Japanese, of course, had their own motives. They were hoping to take over a large part of the Far East, of the Russia Far East. Later, of course, this was all part of their sort of Lebensraum. The population in Japan was too large. They were therefore looking for a colony. And eventually they took over Manchukuo, or Manchuria, which yes. they called Manchukuo, instead. And the Americans sent troops to root them off. Well, Americans sent troops really to try to keep an eye on what was going on. But Woodrow Wilson was very dubious about, quite rightly, about any involvement. He warned the divisional commander, you know, it's going to be like stepping on explosive eggs, so uh, be careful how you go. But they were basically keeping an eye on the Japanese, who had extraordinarily optimistic views. I mean, I quote one Japanese officer saying that soon the whole world would be speaking Japanese. They really did think that they were going to sort of take over the whole area. History was in their favour. It was already written in the stars. History was in their favour, exactly. Anyway, for example, in Murmansk and uh, Archangel, you had an Allied force. But that was not part of the intervention in the Civil War. They had been sent there, originally British Royal Marines, Royal Marine Light Infantry, because, of course, there had been huge supply depots landed there to help the Russian armies against the Germans. Ah. And so they were defending the, those. And then, of course, there was a Finnish civil war going on with German troops in Finland very close yes. by. So they were worried that the Germans were going to get that arms depot. Exactly. Right. And that was the reason that then they were added to. There were Americans, Canadians, Italians and French. But shall we say, none of them were very enthusiastic soldiers there. I mean, there were constant mutinies, especially amongst the white Russian troops who were sort of shooting their British officers at night in bed. I mean, it was pretty, pretty chaotic in that way. But the point was that the locals supported the Allied intervention because they'd been abandoned by Moscow. They had no money, they couldn't feed anybody. So the Allies were sort of welcomed, even though it was going to be disastrous for them later. Talking about the Allies, I'm assuming that as they come in here, they're coming in on the side of the Whites. Was anyone... No, not not necessarily. One has to remember, of course, is, I mean, when it came down to it, you're absolutely right. But what one has to remember was, this was the end of the First World War, November 1918. The Supreme Allied Council in Paris was having to reorganise basically the whole world, new frontiers in all directions, you know, discussing this, which they were trying to do in about two or three months. And then Woodrow Wilson in January 1919 announces he's going home, but he's also said, I'm going to try and get a uh, peace settlement between the whites and the reds. Well, that came to nothing, as you might imagine. And this gave an opportunity to Churchill, who had just become Secretary of State for War, who was ferociously anti-Bolshevik, funny enough, on the grounds just of ideology, but also because he could see that the Russian Civil War was going to destroy the food for basically much of Europe 
Which was going to lead to unrest right across Europe, not which, just in Which Russia. had already had a major problem because Churchill's failures at Gallipoli and the attempts to try and break through to Dardanelles had meant that global trade of grain had already ground to a halt. So this was That's exacerbating a terrible international situation. It was. That was his sort of first reaction. But of course, he was also, as soon as they started to get information about what was coming out of Russia in terms of the Cheka, the, the tortures, the murders, and all the rest of it, and the mass assassinations, Churchill became even more anti-Bolshevik. And of course, Clemenceau was even probably even more extremely anti-Bolshevik than Churchill. So he wanted to send both troops to fight. The British weren't sending troops to fight at that stage. And also the French Navy. Now, the trouble was that we had already had the French army mutinies in 1917 after the Nivelle Offensive. And now we started to see as soon as the French troops just weren't really prepared to fight. In fact, it was the biggest humiliation for French arms in a long time. And they were literally driven off by, funny enough, a red Cossack, Ataman in Ukraine, who was one of the worst anti-Semites going. And they then were sort of forced all the way back to Odessa and then had to be evacuated because of the chaos. And then you had the mutiny of the French fleet in the Black Sea. So that wasn't, shall we say, very advantageous for French pride. The British, meanwhile, were actually not sending troops. They're really their own sort of fighting component was an RAF squadron, 47 Squadron RAF, who were very effective against Red Cavalry when they eventually appeared, you know, especially around Tsaritsyn, the later Stalingrad, in the fighting there. And there were a few tanks, the old ones from First World War. So all of this equipment, artillery, tanks, uniforms, even hospitals and so forth, were all being shipped out. I mean, in financial terms, millions of pounds worth, even in those days. So with all of this in mind, when it comes to the the clash between the Reds and the Whites, Mm -hmm. is it less about the Red Army's superiority and Trotsky's skills at organising, and more about the ineptitude of the Whites, and in fact their internal infighting as well? Yes, to a very large degree. But I mean, Trotsky made mistakes as well in the sense that he despised cavalry as an aristocratic pastime or whatever. But when you look at the sheer size of the Eurasian landmass, it was going to be a railway cavalry war, certainly in the earlier part. And this is why the whites started to do really rather well, because they had the best cavalry in terms of the Cossacks and even some of the uh, white czarist units or whatever. And then eventually Trotsky had to admit his mistake and start to raise red cavalry regiments with the uh, wonderful slogan and poster saying, proletarians to horse. Um, And they did start to create the first major one, in fact, of course, was Budyonny, Zamyan Budyonny, who was one of Stalin's great cronies involved, first of all, in the defence of Tsaritsyn, which is why it later became Stalingrad. That's where Stalin makes his name? That's where Stalin makes his name, but actually, purely through total cruelty and ferocity. I mean, you know, he killed, I mean, a large part of the population on the grounds that he thought they might possibly be white spies or whatever it might be. Foreboding to what is to come. Foreboding to what is definitely what is to come. But anyway, he managed to manipulate the myth quite effectively. But he did win, rather through his proxies, he did win the great strategic debate with Trotsky. Trotsky believed that the next stage, really, of 1919, moving into 1920, should be that the Red Army should really defeat General Denikin in the south with the White Armies there by attacking through eastern Ukraine and then into the Caucasus. So in this strategic debate, Trotsky and his supporters basically were defeated and uh, Stalin's supporters won the argument in uh, the Kremlin 
that actually they needed to defeat the whites in Siberia first, Admiral Kolchak's forces, because they had been actually advancing and like in any area where there's just so much space, it was quite often a very rapid advance. And then, my God, it was a very rapid retreat. And they were advancing towards Ekaterinburg, which is where by then the Reds were holding the imperial family and nearby other members of the imperial family, the Grand Dukes and so forth. Right. And this is, when, this is when they said, right, we must now kill them. But Lenin was definitely in favor of killing them because for him, it meant that the past could never come back. So they, they wanted to basically wipe out the imperial family. So as the whites are making gains, yes. and they may well liberate the Tsar and his family, yeah. they see this as a moment to literally decapitate the cause. Well, not literally. He's, he's shot with a firing squad along with his family in the basement. But the whole point here, is it to really weaken that white claim, that Tsarist claim to the future of Russia? Yes, but above all, I think it was to emphasize the fact that that past can never come back at all. It was basically the way that, of course, the Kremlin tried to pretend they had no input, but actually, I think recent research has shown very, very clearly that the Kremlin knew very well and, in fact, had actually given the instruction to the local Soviet, get rid of them. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser-known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mm-hmm. 
Is it around this time that the period of Red Terror begins? Or is this happening all along? Because one thing I took from reading your book on the Russian Revolution mm -hmm. was really quite how palpably horrific it was. You have to have quite a strong constitution to read your, your book at certain points. I mean, there are people thrown into furnaces yes. alive. How bad did it get? And when did the Red Terror begin and end? The communists would argue that the Red Terror didn't start until really after the attempt of Fanny Kaplan to assassinate Lenin in um, the summer of 1918. But in fact, the Red Terror really began with the institution of the Cheka in December 1917. And the Cheka were the secret police. The Cheka was the secret police, which later became the KGB um, or NKVD, KGB, etc., etc. And this was going to be, it was described basically as the sword and shield of the revolution and so forth. The leader, Felix Dzerzinski was totally incorruptible, but at the same time, absolutely passionate in his belief in the revolution, in the creation of Homo Sovieticus, the transformation of society and all the rest of it. What sort of methods do they employ during the Red Terror? What was their modus operandi? Well, in many cases, the definition of an enemy. In fact, they sort of said, do not ask any questions, just ask what is their background, i.e., did they come from a rich family? And soon that was even extended, of course. The kulaks, the rich peasants, were even then defined as class enemies and therefore were to be killed. Or we forget that it was Lenin who invented the gulag and they were sent to the islands in the White Sea where most of them died or were starved to death as well as all those who were actually killed at the time. In fact, there were many echoes of the French Revolution where aristos had been put into barges, which had then been sunk in rivers or in the sea. And they were doing this in uh, the Baltic, where they'd been bound up with barbed wire, forced into these barges, and then the barges were sunk. I'm fascinated to learn that Lenin's solution to a lot of this was the establishment of the gulags. Was that his way of bringing the civil war to an end, exile them as far as possible, and then you can start to build this Soviet state? Well, he was basically eliminate anybody who is likely to oppose the Soviet state or is likely to prove to be a saboteur or wrecker or whatever it might be. And he assumed right at the start, I mean, he even accused the bourgeoisie of sabotaging the food supplies. Well, I mean, the bourgeoisie had nothing to do with the food supplies. It was a question either of transport, which was, of course, a major problem at that stage during that particular very cold winter, or it was a question of the food at origin. And of course, they made things worse because they sent food detachments, basically were industrial workers, round the villages to seize their food so as to feed the cities. So as far as the peasants were concerned, they turned against the Reds because they saw that they were being turned into the serfs of the proletariat. And am I right in thinking they took the seed grain as well, which they meant they the couldn't grain. plant for the next year? Precisely. And this is why you had the famines. And in many ways, you know, Lenin had managed through these policies, especially the food policies, to turn the peasantry against them. It was just that the whites were so stupid and so reactionary that they were even worse. And so there they had an opportunity of getting a large proportion of the population on their side. And in many cases, you know, the whites or the Cossacks would ride into a town, they'd be greeted as heroes. People would even come out and kiss the stirrups of the officers or whatever in gratitude that they'd arrived. And they would be hated within three days because of rapes, of stealing, of looting, and all the rest of it, and their sheer arrogance. 
With all of this going on, with the Tsar and his family dead, with chaos all around and starvation afoot and a harsh winter, how is it that the Russian Civil War comes to an end? Well, the key year, of course, was 1919, where the fighting towards the end of 1919, which had been a tremendous white advance on Moscow. I mean, they'd managed to get all the way to within, you know, a couple of hundred miles of Moscow. And they, there were even rumours that the Bolsheviks were abandoning the capital and all the rest of it. And Churchill was getting really excited, thinking, you know, this is going to be it. And then couldn't understand why there was a sudden turnaround. And this was partly because the armies which had been used against Siberia and had defeated Admiral Kolchak could now be brought back and suddenly started to reinforce the Red Army there. But also because the Reds were very much more intelligent than the Whites, they offered an amnesty to all the deserters. Right. And suddenly there was another half million joining the Red Army. So the Whites suddenly were pushed all the way back to the south, some of them into the Crimea, but most of them back into the Caucasus. And of course, it's from Crimea, they're pushed even further, and they have to evacuate to Turkey. Yeah, exactly. But that's not until October and November 1920. But in the meantime, and this is again the great stupidity of the Whites, in the meantime, there is the Russian-Polish War. And the Whites, because of their reactionary Russian imperialist ideas, refuse to offer any encouragement to independence in any case. They've said basically to the Poles, you know, you actually should still be part of the Russian Empire. So Plusudski, their leader, had very little faith in them at all. Ditto with Estonia, which had been part of the Russian Empire and the Baltic states, and ditto with Finland. And that is why the fin white Finns managed to win their civil war, okay, with German help during the first part of 1918. So having sort of really irritated and exasperated all of those people with whom they could have had a, quite an effective alliance. Here they were more or less abandoned in the Crimea, now under the command of General Baron Wrangel, who was a very effective commander and especially a cavalry commander, and General Denikin had gone off into exile. But the Poles probably wouldn't like the idea that their war against the Bolsheviks, which they regarded as one of the great decisive battles of the world, and to a large degree was, this was at this moment of over-optimism on the part of the Bolshevik of the communist government in, in Moscow that they were about to break open the whole of Europe and create world revolution. Well, actually, the German revolution had already failed, but they still thought if we can get through white Poland, we can sort of stir it all up again. And so in the summer of 1920, as they advanced south of East Prussia, they underestimated the way that the Poles, especially with their cavalry, had actually taken a very dangerous but brilliant strategic gamble of swinging all the way out and then attacking them from the flank. And this caused total destruction and really humiliation and the defeat of the Red Army there. And in the south, you had Stalin with the other Red Army who refused to come to the help of General Tukhachevsky, who was a very young but brilliant commander in the north. And this led to, shall we say, eventually to Tukhachevsky being executed by Stalin later on during the 1930s. Surprise, surprise, because Stalin had been blamed, not surprisingly, for the defeat against the Poles. And it's from here that the civil war starts to come to an end. The whites are, are not very canny at diplomacy. They sow the seeds of their own undoing. Absolutely. And you have the, the rise of the Bolsheviks and the start of the Soviet, really. This period of time that, of course, defines so much of the 20th century. 
Now, one thing that the Russian army is notorious for is their brutality, something which we're seeing around the world today with Russia's offensive war in Ukraine. Is this something that you see as a legacy from that period, something that is formed out of the Russian civil war? A lot of people would say it goes much further back. It even goes back to the Mongol invasions of the 13th century, the feeling that the world is against them and that basically that rape, destruction, massacre of civilians is a natural weapon of war. And I think in the West, although we had our horrors of the wars of religion in the 17th century and all the rest of it, there was an enlightenment afterwards and a growth in the view of humanism and so forth, which never really took place in Russia. And, you know, whether it's the expansion of the Russian Empire, the cruelty there was still pretty horrific, especially into the Caucasus and even into Iran. What we see, therefore, is although the First World War was fought much more under the conditions of the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians, but the Russian Civil War reverted very much to what Pushkin referred to as Russian revolt, merciless and senseless. And there we do see this reversion to the idea that cruelty was almost essential if you were going to win the battle. To a certain degree on both sides, I think on the side of the Reds, particularly because of the Cheka, it was worse. But I mean, the whites, especially the Cossacks, you know, the way they were using their sabers would sort of hack people to pieces while they were still alive and all the rest of it. But we don't need to go into that anymore. But what we then see, of course, is the Second World War, where the Red Army, having, and many of them have felt humiliated by their own leaders and by their own political officers, and the way they were forced to crawl out into no man's land to strip their own dead of their uniforms so that they could be reused elsewhere. We're seeing similar things in sort of Ukraine. Again, we're seeing the rapes, we're seeing the destruction, the totally unnecessary killing of civilians. All of these things again. But again, there is this element of the way that their recruits and conscripts are being completely humiliated or have been and why they are taking it out on the victims. I mean, I remember in Russia in the 90s, I mean, there were up to 5,000 conscripts a year committing suicide because of their way that they were tortured, hazed, whatever you want to call it, on joining the Russian army. One of the highest suicide rates in the world. One of the highest suicide rates in the world. So we do see, and it's really one of the explanations, that it's become something that seems to be so natural to the Russian military mentality that they often treat their own people just as badly as they treat their enemies. And that is why one sort of fears for a disintegration of the Russian army, or even though one hopes for it in a way, it's the best way of ending the war in Ukraine, but also to what degree that that will then lead to some sort of cruel and brutal disintegration of Russia itself, which would be a terrible humanitarian disaster. And yet, as I say, it's probably the only way that we will see the end of the war in Ukraine. But Crimea is going to be the central question. And it is fascinating, isn't it, how these same strategic choke points appear time and time again throughout history. The Russian Civil War, the British in Crimea, and Crimea and Ukraine again today. Anthony, thank you so much for your time. You've taken us, well, from this room where Lenin allegedly started the violent side of the Russian Revolution all the way through that Russian Civil War, taking us to, well, really outlining how its legacies affect us today. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at JamesRogersHistory, and on TikTok also at JamesRogersHistory. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.